For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, for you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Lord, bless the reading and the teaching of your word. Lord, would you guide and correct us? Lord, speak to us. We ask these things in your name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning, 930. Oh, there we are. Let's be a little more interactive. You guys awake here in the house and at your house? Hope so. A lot of folks sick, some folks quarantined, some folks very concerned. Look, we love you all. We're praying for you and hope to have you back. I want you back. Is that a Backstreet Boys song or NSYNC or something like that? I want you back. That's my message. Not from the Bible, but from 90s boy band. That's the sentiment. Thank you, Daniel, for reading the word. Hey, want to give you a heads up next week. I know you will probably, many of you, I'm looking at you, you'll have a college football opening weekend hangover. But want to invite you to be here. And a special message if you're traveling, a lot of you will be on Labor Day. But uh, tune in, if you will. We have a special standalone message in between sermon series. And it's going to be called uh, Fake News, Conspiracy Theories, and the Truth. So we're going to ruffle some feathers, rattle some cages, and I will preach next Sunday and then take a nap and then open up my email. And hopefully I'll be hearing from some of you as we step on some toes. Hey, we've been in and are today wrapping up a series on faith, why faith matters. In week one, we looked at how to have a faith you can keep. And we looked at John 8, 31 and 32. Jesus said, if you're really my disciples, if you continue in my word, and you're going to find out if you listen to me, this is a, this is, I like to 
tell everybody this. It's sort of on par with taste and see that the Lord is good. But run an experiment and listen to the words of Jesus. Um, hear him and then apply what he's saying. Uh, he, he'll make your life better. When you stay in the teaching, you're going to find a freedom. The truth will set you free. Uh, week two, the difference of faith the community can make. We looked at Romans 1.12 about mutual faith, your faith and my faith together, working together. Uh, we uh, had a backdrop, Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47. And we talked about how you got to keep it real. Um, how you need to move beyond what you feel and how you need to share your life with zeal. I had three points. They rhymed. I don't even know if y'all dropped extra money in the offering plate in week two. Then week three, a story about faith in storms. We looked at Jesus on a boat with the disciples and we talked about uh, discerning his presence, detecting his calling. Then we looked, of course, at faith and fear and failure. And then we looked at the idea of focus. Is it going to be on the storm? Is it going to be on Jesus? And then last week, we looked at faith and self-awareness. The challenge for you was to be the world's leading expert on you. But so many of us are not self-aware. And in Romans 12, 3, we looked at this one passage where it says, hey, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. And I shared an illustration about bowling. Some of you are going to go bowling with me when they open up Fondren's new bowling alley next to the Capri Theater. And it doesn't matter if you roll a gutter ball left or a gutter ball right. If you think too highly of yourself or too lowly of yourself, either way, you're missing the mark. You don't win. You don't get any pins. And that's the way pride can be if you think too highly of yourself. But also have sober judgment according, as it says, to the measure of faith. Look, here's the thing that I know. Even if you don't claim to be a person of faith, you may be here today and a bit skeptical or cynical or whatever, doubting or just curious or watching from home. But hey, you you may say, I'm not really a person of faith. But here's what I believe that's true of all of us. All of us at our core, undeniably, unquestionably, are inspired by faith stories. Something a little different, something that's not standard, status quo, run of the mill. We're inspired by that when someone overcomes something, and that's what faith does. Remember the definition of faith? It's the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And when someone can see beyond the ordinary, something they transcend what is normal uh, as an overcomer, it, it inspires us, doesn't it? Let me show you a picture. This is Vineeth Reisner, and Vineeth, uh, her story started in India when she was just a little child, she contracted polio right before she was going to get the vaccine. And her story is one where her family moved from India to England and then to Canada. And she was a resident, a regular resident for years at the Shriners Hospital for Crippled Children in Montreal. She, her first surgery was at the age of two, major surgery. She had 21 major surgeries in her childhood. The first time she ever walked Miss Vanith Reisner, she was seven years old and it was interspersed with wheelchairs and walkers and crutches and then stumbling and always having the help of a friend. She was bullied by kids. She was mocked. Uh, she overheard, she tells a story in her memoir of overhearing uh, her only friend at the time ask a nurse if she didn't, you know, can I not push her? It gets tired, tiring to, to always be with her, and it, it hurt her. She spent more time with nurses than she did with her own parents, and she tells stories of, of, cold, of cold food and sponge baths and silent treatment. She found a friend in her teenage years that went to an FCA camp, and this student 
had come back with faith in Jesus, a newfound faith in Christ, and wouldn't stop talking about what Jesus can do in a life. And she was skeptical. God, for her, was a distant being, if even a being, if he even existed at all. And if he did, he was heartless and didn't care for her. I mean, how could he? And she says, due to the influence and the life change of a friend, she began to read the Bible. She read Leviticus and thought, like many of us, why would I read this? And what does this have to do with my current life? And randomly, randomly, she turned to John chapter 9, and there was the story, some of you know it, where a man is born blind, and the onlookers asked the rabbi, hey, rabbi, why was this man born blind? Whose fault is it, his or his parents? And Jesus' response, does anybody remember it? Hey, it's nobody's fault. This man was born blind so that the works of God may be displayed in him. And she noticed a savior, a, a rabbi, a messiah, a transcendent son of God who was saying who was, in essence, shifting the focus from whose fault it is to what purpose it could serve. And that, for her, was everything. How might this Savior change my life as I invite him in and as I follow him? How might he change my life? And that was the beginning of her journey. And here's the thing. Just like any faith journey, remember we talked about orientation, disorientation, and reorientation but she, uh, she experienced a lot of pain. She, as I said, went back into wheelchair. Her health has uh, declined. Even as she's riding um, in the latter days, her, her health was really slowly and painfully declining. She uh, knew family breakup and alienation. But here's what she writes. His truth has set me free. My greatest gift is the treasure of his presence. With every heartache, he draws close, using my weakness to display his strength. Here is uh, Naomi Adamu. She attended, she lives in Nigeria, attended a girls' school in a region where most girls are not um, educated. Many, even young girls, don't know how to read. And in 2014, a, a, in a story that captured the nation, there was a hashtag, uh, bring the girls back. Well, some, an Islamic militant group came into this uh, Christian village and took 276 girls who were just about to graduate high school a month later and put them in a bus, stockpiled them, put them in a bus and drove into the wilderness. And family and friends went after these 276 girls. They found nothing and before you know it, uh, there, there are some uh, limited virtues of social media. And before you knew it, A-list celebrities, uh, politicians, actors, um, folks began to hashtag, bring the girls back, and it brought attention. And before long, there were or satellites orbiting in space and looking to the dense, dark regions of Africa, uh, seeking them. But they were, uh, they were kept for several years, and there was three different uh, releases and here's what a Wall Street Journal, a Wall Street invest, Journal investigative reporter who did deep work in this area wrote this, who was uh, not a person of faith before he began his research. Here's what he said about Naomi. Yes, we found a different perspective among a group of young women who had faced unimaginable hardship and they survived. Their faith, that's what we're talking about, provided twin acres of, a, uh, twin anchors rather, of identity and hope during a period when their captors were trying to erase both. Repeatedly, 
told their parents were dead, their places of worship were torched, and their community was not flying Boko Haram's black and white flag. But faith became the language of their resistance. Their regular fast and transformed hunger into a source of strength as they took turns renouncing food for a few days to create a spiritual energy they believed would help free them. On days when their resolve was weak and they had very incentive to give in, Naomi and her friends leaned into their faith as a source of strength. It's arrogant for us and everybody who's deconstructing or losing or leaving or thinking, it's, it's, it's arrogant to, to discount stories like this just to say that you know that you know that you know. And there's so many stories. And I know, I know, I've said it almost every week. I know, I know, I know we're supposed to be cynical and only selectively look at the bad. But there's so many stories like this that as a pastor, as a person, inspire me to think about faith and its influence in our lives. Daniel began our worship began this part of the worship service reading Galatians chapter 5. And he read this part that I want to hone in on today. It's why Fondren Church exists. We want to be a place where people find faith and express it through love. In the ESV, mostly that's the version that we read from, Daniel read this aloud to us, only faith working through love. Today as we close this series, I want us to talk about this very thing, about faith working through love. You know, it's easy to think. I've gone through periods of my life as well thinking, you know, this is, a, this is an ancient book. It's dense and difficult to understand and grasp. You ever feel that way or feel that way now? So you let maybe the professionals do it or a Bible teacher, a podcaster, and you kind of sit back and don't read it for yourself. But dense and difficult to understand and so ancient. What, what is the point of this book? Well, I don't know if I can convince everybody or, or cut through the fog for everybody, but I want to give it a shot. Uh, stay, stay with me for just a minute. Jesus was asked one time, he was tested because there were 613 laws. Uh, they had added to Moses' law a lot of their own. As you know, that's what religion does. Be careful of religion. It can go dark and it can, men, it's always men, can put burdens on your back that your God never intended for you to carry. But Jesus was questioned one time and he said this he said love the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself one time he would look over to his disciples and tell them that there would be a signature characteristic there would be a point where people could identify them on this very thing he said this by this all one every all men everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another John must have got the memo the disciple John And he said that anybody who loves is born of God and knows God. But you know what he did? Because we need this because we're humans. He flipped it. He said, everybody who does not love is not born of God and and does not know God because God is love. Peter must have got the memo and seen it in Jesus because he says, above all else, love each other deeply from the heart. Love covers a multitude of sins. Isn't that a good thing? Love covers a multitude of sins. Anybody grateful for that today? Paul definitely uh, got the memo. He said to Timothy and now to us, the goal of our instructions, I know some of you are getting really smart, but the goal of our instruction is what? It is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Love Love, love, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. 1 Corinthians 16, 14, do everything in love. Any questions, class, about what the purpose of this might be? Any, any questions? Love, listen to me, love is the answer. What makes a church great? What does the devil hate? What do you look for in a mate? 
What are you hoping for in a date? Why do we procreate? What is your ultimate faith? What can you never overrate? Say it to me, class. It is love. And the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Love is the answer. But love, can we say, it hurts. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. It's true. And here's the thing. Beyond a really bad song that SNL spoofed years ago, it happens to all of us. All of us get hurt by love. In fact, the very definition of love, when combined with in a world that's sinful and fallen and fractured, love is going to hurt. It really is. And that's why what I love about this writing on love is it's far from a romantic hallmark card with its sentimentality. In fact, the very chapter that we call the love chapter in the Bible, by the way, just a show of hands if you're in the house this morning, how many of you have been to a wedding or at your very own wedding if you're married and you had 1 Corinthians 13 read? Anybody, everybody, if you're honest, you've been to a wedding or at your wedding, you had 1 Corinthians 13. And here's the thing, love was hurting. Love, love does hurt. And there was a group that Paul was writing to a group of early Jesus followers in a city, a very important city called Corinth. And he's writing to them. And he, I don't think he sat down and thought, I'm going to write this love chapter so that a long time from now, people in Mississippi can read it at their weddings. He didn't think that at all. He wrote that because it was a mess in Corinth. In fact, if you read, that's chapter 13, as you know, but chapter 12, he's talking about gifts. He's talking about uh, the mess that, that love causes when it hurts other people. And in verse 14, he picks that back up and he just wedges chapter 13, not so that we can be romantic and sentimental and Hallmark card-like or have it read at our wedding, but so that we can know what love really is and how to work through it. In fact, they had a lot of faults. There's a, a a Seinfeld episode, anybody remember, if you're my age or older, you will, because Seinfeld's kind of that now. And y- y'all, you young people watch Seinfeld, y'all go back and, okay. But uh, there's an episode where George Costanza is just realizes, man, he, 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 that he's a loser in life. Just, man, I'm just a loser. And he thinks, you know, I'm going to go opposite. He develops a life strategy where he's going to do the opposite of what he's been doing. And man, the life strategy worked. He finds finances and success and many attractive women are drawn to him. Opposite worked for George Costanza on this episode, at least, of Seinfeld. And it's like Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. And he's talking to them about love because it's all about love. What makes a church great? Love. What does the devil hate? Love. What are we all looking for? Love. And he's writing and he's saying to them, it's like you're the George Costanza of churches. I know I got my order mixed up, but in essence, that's what he's saying. You're the George Costanza of churches. You're doing the opposite of what love is. And here's the writings. Just a quick reference. I don't have the text up, but if you want to take a picture or jot it down, he, he talks to them repetitively about envy, about boasting. And about being puffed up. Envy is something that you do. I would venture a guess that it's easier in our day to envy than it was in theirs. Boasting is something that you do, like envy. But puffed up becomes someone that you are. And if you envy and then you boast, you will become a person that's puffed up. And that's very colorful language. If you uh, look back in the Greek, some of you scholars may know that the, that colorful language is sort of like a, gives us a picture of like a balloon on the outside is big, as in, big and impressive, but inside is full of hot air and it will be popped. And the Bible makes that promise in more than one place. If you get puffed up with pride, you will pop. It's going to happen every time. Maybe not immediately. 
In fact, I would say usually it's not immediately, but eventually. Anybody learn that hard lesson? I hope you do, and I hope you can get back up and remain standing once you do learn the lesson I have. But when you start thinking more highly of yourself, when you envy and you boast. And so he's saying you envy, you boast, and you're puffed up. In fact, 37 times boasting is mentioned in the New Testament, mostly to the church at Corinth. They had a boasting problem. They had an envy problem. And so they became people who were puffed up. And Paul is writing and saying, man, you're getting it. Do the opposite. Because what would Paul say? If you think I'm being silly with my George Costanza, what would Paul say? Paul would say, love does not envy, love does not boast, and love is not proud. So do the opposite of this. So today, as we talk about faith expressing itself through love, because only faith in love, faith through love, only that counts. Only that. The other stuff that Daniel read, by the way, it was a wonderful moment when the senior pastor gets to delegate to another pastor to read stuff about the desires of the flesh. Man, I've just, I've just reveled in you having to read that in front of everybody. He, he really loved the fruit of the Spirit, but the, the desires of the flesh it was, was a fun, wasn't it? You're good with it. Daniel says it's cool. But in this, in this idea here, faith through love, I want us to look at the first component of love that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 13, that love is ready love is patient and if you're a note taker you may want to write this down love is patient we are not Dallas Willard that I quote probably too often for some of you who are regulars Dallas Willard a long time ago was asked if you had to describe Jesus in just one word what would you describe and his response was a peculiar one but very poignant He said, Jesus is relaxed. Now, that seems a little undignified and really not as religious an answer as for some of our liking. Uh, Think about coming to church and and reciting a creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, born of a virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, and relaxed. It just doesn't seem religious enough, does it? Jesus, uh, you know, in fact, we gather and celebrate it. We, we know a few things about very, very, very important people's lives, about their birth, but we really celebrate no one's birth historically, only Jesus Christ. But Jesus was born amidst poverty in an obscure village in a little town called Nazareth. And when he was 12 years old, Luke chapter 4 tells us, he rolled over to the temple. Now, he went to the temple regularly, as was his custom. Y'all come to church. Jesus wasn't against the church gathering. He was very much for it, and he practiced it. And Jesus went, and he rolled the scroll and read from Isaiah chapter 61. And Jesus went back home after church that day. He left the temple and went to his wood shop. And he was 12 years old. And someone asked him, Jesus, what are you doing? Because what he was doing didn't seem that important. And Jesus said, I'm going to be about my father's business. Well, come on, Jesus. And Jesus turned, he went from 12. And before they knew it, he was 18. And then he was 20. And then he was 25. And then he was 29. Hey, Jesus, the clock is ticking. If you're going to be about your father's business, what are you doing sawing on logs and selling lumber and doing these things if you're going to be about the father's business Jesus's first public ministry launch was aided and abetted by John the Baptist with his locusts and wild honey and his sandals and his uh, eccentric behavior and Jesus the ministry launched and the very first thing he did 
was he retreated to the wilderness for 40 days. 40 days in the desert in unhurried prayer. Jesus, what are you what are you doing? The first sermon that Jesus ever preached. You remember your first sermon? I remember my first sermon. The first sermon Jesus ever preached, some people wanted to kill him. But the passage tells us, in this gospel account, it says that Jesus walked through the village. He was just kind of sauntering through the streets after people wanted to kill him because Jesus was not stressed or worried, rushed or hurried. Even though he's about his father's business, he had a peace there. Jesus was relaxed. There was a time when he told the disciples they were walking and that's what they did. They traveled at the speed of foot. And Jesus said, hey, you guys go ahead. I'm going to stay here because I am ready for it. I am tired. And Jesus stops. And when they come back to this particular Sumerian village, he's there with a woman at a well. She had been married five times and she was currently shacking up with a man. And men did not talk to women in the public square. They certainly did not. Jewish men did not talk to Sumerian women. And there was Jesus, relaxed posture, talking to this woman. They were in a boat. We preached it a couple of weeks ago. Laura read that from up here on the stage, Matthew 14. They were in a boat and there was a storm. These guys were fishermen. They had been on the water. Like friends you know that are down on the coast. They've seen storms before. But there must have been something about this storm. And Jesus was taking a nap. Some of you, look, let me give you, help you here. When you're, someone gives you a hard time for taking a nap, tell them you're just, you're being like Jesus. And Jesus was taking a nap because he was relaxed. And he knew something about what the Father was up to. John chapter 2 tells us that he gives a, a little bit of a different angle, a little bit more insight on the account of Jesus, the very famous story of Jesus turning over the, the temple when the money changers, when people were wrongly profiting on religion. Aren't you glad we've advanced so far from that now? Nobody does that. You don't, have, you don't look at anybody. Any, any, there's no scam preachers out there, anybody profiting on religion. We've come so far, haven't we? But in Jesus' day, there were people doing that. And John 2 tells us, John 2, 15 tells us that Jesus took time to braid the whip. Really? Jesus, couldn't you get, I mean, you're the son of God. Couldn't you get a, a pre-braided whip? But Jesus took time to braid the whip and said, gee, you better hurry up. You better hurry. Jesus is like, this is my sanctified imagination. They're not going anywhere. As Jesus braids the whip, Jesus was relaxed. But the disciples, look what it says in Luke 24, describing the disciples. And I think we can connect with this. He said to them, how foolish you are and slow to believe. What's our series? Faith matters. Why faith matters. But let's humble ourselves. We're not coming here as pretty and perfect people and all put together we all stumble and we all doubt and we're all learning our way. In some extent, we're all going through an orientation, a disorientation, a reorientation. And for all of us, I think we can, Jesus could say to us, you're foolish and you're slow to believe. It's better when he says it to us and not us to each other. I guarantee you, if you're a team leader, some of you lead a team, you lead an organization, this is the last quality you're looking for in teammates. Slow people, foot draggers, lazy folks. People that are like blisters, they show up when the work's done. That's, that's not who you're looking for. And Jesus is, ne- never did Jesus say, you know, I'm going to swap you out. I'm going to trade you in. Why? I'm preaching it right now because love is patient. And we see that in Jesus. Despite their stiff necks, despite their hard hearts, beside, despite the fact that they were foolish and so slow to believe. They were slow to believe. They were slow to obey. They were slow to understand. 
They themselves had times where they envied and they boasted and they were puffed up. And I love that the scriptures tells us of that so that we can relate to them. Jesus says, I love you and I'm going to forbear with you. Oh, they were slow. What's the one word you would use, Dallas Willard, to describe Jesus? Jesus is relaxed and love is patient. As we sort of round toward home, I want to give you two, two things Two practices that you can adopt, both biblically based, both Christ-centered, that can help you develop in your patience. By the way, a survey was done in North Carolina of uh, some area churches, and the, the, the survey asked the question, of these fruit of the Spirit that we read earlier, love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control, of those nine traits of the fruit of the Spirit, uh, which do you need the most? What are you most desirable of? And the number one answer was patience. That's where we're so lacking. Love is patient, but we are not. You know, I, I think again of our day, similar to a, a vein of thought I had earlier, but I mean, is it harder or easier today to be patient? We have fast food. We have speed dating. We have overnight mail. We have instant messaging. We text message, and it's so slow we abbreviate. We send things like ASAP because we don't have time to type the words. And ASAP means do it fast, do it now. We're not doing ourselves any favors by becoming more patient people. And so, following in the line of some preachers who are getting it right today in the modern world, I want to give you two practices that can help you in following the way of Jesus and learning that love is patient. The first is this, it's slowing. I'm going to say something that's going to make me a really big hypocrite. And my family will be, some of them will be here at the 11 o'clock. And so I'll be a little more nervous. But I just, here's, here's a practice I want to give to you. Drive the speed limit. All right? Today, when you leave church for the rest of the day and into tomorrow, drive the speed limit. If it says 35 Drive 35. Some of you can barely understand what I'm saying now. Like you can't even grasp this. But drive the speed limit. And if you get behind an accident, like I did the other day on 55, instead of the first thought being, man, I got an appointment waiting on me in my office. And these guys have a wreck in front of me. How dare them? I've got a a congregate, a would-be parishioner waiting for me. They're going to think I'm a bad pastor And those were my thoughts. I I wasn't patient. I wasn't centered. Here's the thing. When you get behind an accident, and you won't be in the accident because you'll be driving the speed limit, but you pray for the people involved in that accident. And as you pray, don't worry about yourself. At church, have a peace about you and take time. Because notice 1 Corinthians 13. Some of you notice love is patient. What's next? Love is patient. Love is? It's kind because patient people tend to be kind people. And look, you're not patient. I don't even have to know you. I'm pointing at y'all. But I don't, I'm, look, I'm going to be right here. At every, every person I'm pointing at, if you're not patient, you're not kind. If you're busy and rushed and you're stressed and not relaxed and don't have a posture, a non-anxious presence, then you're not as kind as you can be. And so when you're at church, look, take time to talk to somebody. Take time to listen. What if people came to know Fondren as a church that has a peaceful, easy feeling. That's an eagle song, but let's make it spiritual here. 
What if we had, what, what if when people came in, people noticed them and people looked at them and people talked to them and people sustained conversation, look and linger with people. And then as church begins to end, as Lauren and the team are leading us, some of you are like Pavlov's dog salivating at the sound of the bell, like you're planning your exit. Stay a little bit and linger and go slow. When you're at a checkout line and someone's behind you, tell them to get in front of you and just say, I'm waiting on the Lord. Say that to them out loud. <laughs> they'll want to check out really fast. In fact, they'll probably go to another, they'll probably go to another lane. It's worked for me a couple of times. But go slow. Practice slowness. Would you develop some slowness in your life? Would you, would you do these things? Anybody gonna anybody interested in my assignment? All right, if you're not, make up your own. Just do what I say. The second thing is uh, beyond slowing is noticing. Love is patient. Jesus is the great human noticer, a tax collector in a sycamore tree, a man born blind, a woman who touched the hem of his garment in a crowd, little children who came to him and the disciples said they were like, you know, they wanted to screen the children from Jesus. And they thought that Jesus is not going to be interested in the little children. They're so unimportant and he's so busy. Oh, except he's not. And Jesus is the great noticer. I was reading an article and it, a few years back and it motivated me in leading at Fondren with a team of people to just invest more in our gym, to invest more in Red Door, to invest more in mentoring and to seek to invest more in our neighborhood. And this is what someone said, thinking about sociology to extent spirituality and um, criminal justice. This person had this phrase in the midst of their uh, pontificating Witnessing their pain affected their experience of their pain. And I highlighted that a few years back. And I, this week at study of the sermon, I, I recalled it and I, I went for it and wrote it down. Witnessing their pain affected their experience of their pain. You see, at a subterranean, deep level of the heart, all of us want to be seen. We want to be noticed. And we want to be acknowledged. So think with me for a second. When there is a lot of people in our land, amidst of our prosperity, our stability, our happy, in the middle of it when there's so many people, particularly young people who don't feel seen, who don't feel noticed, who don't feel heard, no wonder there's anger and violence in our land. And we exist in part to help you find faith and grow faith and express it in love and to stay, to be in the city and for the city and help us see our city and notice our city. And listen to me, it is, I'll just say it because some of you are worried about where I'm going here. It is, it is political, it is societal, it is structural, but it flows from something deeply personal. And everybody, when people don't have the basics of food and water and clothing and such, when, uh, when people don't feel seen, it boils over. And Jesus is the great noticer of humanity. And he sees. When you open and read and see through the eyes of the Spirit, you will see that he sees. And you will want to see as he sees. And we need to ourselves learn this very thing. When it comes to love, love does hurt 
And if you envy and you boast and you're puffed up, you'll be getting it wrong. And there's a lot of ways to get love wrong. I'm sort of an expert on it. 1 John 2 tells us, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is passing away. But he who does the will of God abides forever. In other words, John, who wrote more about love than anybody, I mean, he just loved, love, love, love. But again, he told us if you don't love or you see someone in need and you don't help with them, then how can God's love dwell in you? If you don't, again, if you don't love, you're not born of God. You don't know God because God is love. But John is also warning us that we can love the wrong things. Now, when the Bible talks about the world, it talks about the good world. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. Yesterday, I don't know what, what it was. I just was slow. Maybe I was thinking about preaching a sermon on slow, and so I needed to slow down. But I just, I walked into the front, my front yard, and I looked up, and the sun was shining through a, a tree that I just barely noticed in my front yard. And I just stood there for probably five minutes and just looked at the sun shimmering down to the tree. And I prayed for that tree, that when Ida comes, that tree would not fall, at least not on my house. I prayed it would fall on Michael and Natalie Prather's house next door, the head basketball coach at Millsaps. But the earth is the Lord's, the trees and the rocks and the mountains and the streams and all the beauty. Oh, I love the world and love the people in it, love everybody in the world. But there is a part of the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Those things are passing away. Don't, we can love the wrong things, but we can love in the wrong way. We read Romans 12, 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be done sincerely. And we can do both things wrong. You can love the wrong things. But you can try to love the right way, but you're doing it in the wrong way. So today in our faith series, as the team begins to make their way up, as we close this faith series with this idea that only faith through love. What counts? The only thing that counts is faith expressing it through love. Well, what is love? Among many things, love is patient. And we see this in our Savior. Love is patient. We are not. To be true to the biblical language, I mean, I went to school for this stuff, so I need to handle it accurately, but the word patience is synonymous with long-suffering. Someone once defined patience as the ability to dwell gladly in the present moment when you prefer not to. Now, nobody's going to do a cartwheel in the aisle over that. But patience is the ability to dwell gladly in the present moment when you prefer not to. Love is patient. Love is long-suffering. Jesus can meet you where you are. I want you to stand with me. I'm going to pray. Pray over you. In a couple of um, movements we're going to make in this moment is to observe for every follower of Jesus. If you're not sure or here today and um, you haven't made this confession, then you might want to sit this out. But for everyone who says today, despite any denominational affiliation or church membership, that's not the issue. The issue is, have you confessed Jesus as Savior and Lord? There is a, a cup before you, and it's got a couple of peely points on top, and it's not easy. I've struggled with this from up front more than a few times. But that first layer, you peel it back, and it gives you 
the symbol of bread, which is the symbol of Christ's body broken for you. And you peel that second layer back without spilling any on the church floor. And this represents Christ's blood shed for you. On the night he was betrayed, a very patient, loving, and kind Savior, a long-suffering Savior, who wanted the cup to pass him, surrendered, was about to surrender his life into the hands of his Father. But he told them, because they were humans who forget, and they were humans who would want to be individuals, who would want to walk away from community, who would not want to be loving and patient and kind, who would rush ahead and be stressed and want to live life on their own. But he wanted them and he wanted us to have this practice as a shared experience. For us to, in a communal way, to take the cup, to take the bread and to say, we are here together. And though we have differences, praise God, we have something in common. We need a savior and we confess him today. And so would you take the cup and the bread with me? This is the body broken for you. Christ's blood shed for you we do this in remembrance Father I pray for the hurry in the room for the stress that uh, no doubt has bumped and bruised us children being hurt marriages being torn apart hearts heavy in a world that just says discard if you don't like it run away if it's not convenient you say to stay and to stick to follow through to wait on the Lord and God we thank you that you are a patient God I for one thank you that you don't swap me out or trade me in. You keep me and you love me. In fact, you're the great keeper. You're able to keep that which I have entrusted to you. Lord, without faith, life is boring and stagnant. You call us to follow you into many, many realms and we surrender our lives. And part of that includes our wallets, our pocketbooks, our bank accounts, Lord, that we would be a generous people so that we could see each other, so we could see others outside of these walls, whether they ever come in these walls or not. We would be noticers, people of peace. And grant that to us, Lord. Bless these tithes and offerings and let our church abound all the more in generosity. In Jesus, we pray. Amen.